Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. A Podcast One Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. After a few months of doing episodes remotely, it's really nice to be recording one face-to-face again. I've done a three-hour road trip to the North Island New Zealand town of Masterton, about 100 k's from the capital Wellington. Former motorcycle racer Aaron Slight grew up here. Success would take him to Monaco with time in Australia, the US and Japan along the way. But it seems you can't keep the boy out of the Wairapa region. Aaron's story is a gripping one, not just for his feats on track, but also because of a freakish brain injury in his prime and some determined gritty comebacks. His race number, Triple One, became a bit of a signature, created as a junior by his dad who knew they couldn't give Aaron the number one straight away, so three straight lines of tape was it, and it stuck. Slight CV also includes some time on four wheels too, and as you'll hear, he loosely worked on plans to race at Bathurst. And he tested one of the all-time gun bikes, Mick Doohan's 500cc Honda, among other dream rides. Now, many of you have asked for this one, describing the once Mohawk sporting world superbike racer as badass. First impressions are actually of a gentle yet driven Kiwi. He's a bit of a perfectionist. And on the bike, fearless with a fondness for wheelies. The record books show Slight went close to winning the World Superbike title, real close in fact, with two runner-up finishes in the championship in 1996 and 98, and he finished top three in the series on another four occasions. From a staggering 239 race starts, he scored 13 wins and a further 74 podium finishes. He was a great endurance racer as well, with two wins in the six-hour here, plus a remarkable three-peat at the famed Suzuka eight-hour in the 90s. Slight was awarded a New Zealand Order of Merit for his commitment to the sport, and he's a Hall of Famer too. The self-styled hoon has kept an old Commodore ute in the garage, and although he probably fell out of love with riding for a while, he's back enjoying it again now. Back in the place where it all began, Masterton. Yeah, yeah. We went on, on a camping trip and went to, and, and watched the Boxing Day races. Mm. Um, so that was road racing and, and, you know, I wasn't really interested in road racing. Um, I, w- I thought I was interested in cars and that was going to be my thing, you know, get into cars, but cars are big and expensive. And then we went further north, um, way up to Coromandel and that was about um, these little hire bikes. And um, so these bikes that you could, the little true test bikes yeah. and you could hire them. So we, you know, made a big effort to go around and the, the day we went around they were closed. And it's like, oh god, you know. So, um, my dad said, "Well, your uncle's actually got a mini bike. If you if you want to ride one, why don't you go and ask him?" And um, it took me 
you know a month to get the courage to ask him to borrow the bike um so he let me have the bike i brought it home and um rode it around the backyard and then in the back paddock and one day i went down to the river and, and met some people who were into motocross and um that was where we started really go to the local motocross it was humble beginnings for you tell us a bit more about that bike and am i right in saying it was kind of gum boots and dad's big helmet and things like that to get going wasn't it oh for sure and for a long time and after gum boots it was tramping boots you know it was yeah so and, and the helmet with a with a big visor on the like a, a open face visor thing and um yeah and it was a gtm x80 um and you know looking back now you know the tires are bald uh, you know but it didn't really matter it was about having fun and and even you know i can remember going to the new zealand um, motocross championship uh, as a 14 year old and you'd go with a shitty old tire and you know what had it you didn't have a new tire you know that it was just you you bought the bike with the tire on it and halfway through the winter you change it to a ching ching the cheapest thing you could find and <laughs> then you, you rode it till the end of the season and then hopefully you, you got the new model yeah. What, a, what about the, the benefits or the, um, you know, if you talk to the likes of a, of a Casey Stoner or perhaps even a Daryl Beattie or, you know, the, the dirt track or motocross or what, what, you know, whatever it might be, ends up being quite influential in, in their road racing career. Those formative years are so important, aren't they? They are, and it's funny, you know, like you say, it's about the dirt in, in Australia. It's about dirt track, and, mm. and here it's motocross. Um, we don't have dirt track. But it's, I think it's just that, that eye-hand coordination thing that you mm. just don't even think about. You know, you're on the throttle or the clutch or whatever, and it's just happening. Yeah. Um, it's a, a sixth sense that just, yeah, it starts from an early age. And, and you know, even now when you go on a trail ride, like why would you dip the front wheel into a big hole? Why wouldn't you wheelie over it? You know, it's just stuff like that you just don't even think about. Mm. And, and that just relates to the road, and then you get to the road and shit's got so much grip and you know it's just and then it hasn't got any grip um but you've got a, an instinct to control that um yeah and i think that's where it comes from yeah you could probably ride round around the road and never have that sort of technique um unless you're brought up then again like the europeans are on their mini bikes mm-hmm. you know so they're losing the front all the time on the road so they've got a you know and they've got they their, the deft touch that yeah field, yeah yeah well we don't have that so you come from a different avenue yeah the um those races, like what we were talking about, about Wanganui and things like that, I mean, New Zealand had some gritty, very good races back then. Um, Graham Crosby's been on our, pod, our podcast before. Who were the guys that sort of inspired you back then when you were you were watching those? Yeah, well, I didn't really get into it as in... Um, because in New Zealand back then, too, there wasn't no, any magazines you could buy, there wasn't any videos to watch, and so I didn't know that, you know, Randy Mamola came to the Marlborough series or whatever, I didn't know that. I, well, I knew that Graham Crosby did cool wheelies, you know, <laughs> okay. and, like, and, and like he was on a Z1R doing wheelies all around Wanganui, and it, that was awesome. Mm. You know, so he was someone I... I thought was pretty cool but we didn't follow him in the Grand Prix because you know it was two months before we got any news from what happened over there yeah. um, and there wasn't a magazine in New Zealand at, the, at that time let alone social media or yeah. big internet coverage yeah. yeah so there was no yeah there was no heroes actually to follow really and um but you know, what Graham did was amazing, and then he switched the cars as well, which I was interested in. And um, you know, he's a cool guy, and yeah. Um, but you know, real, real heroes, just, just race after race. Yeah, you want to win one race, and you want to, and whether it's motocross or whatever, it wasn't sort of aiming to be New Zealand motocross champ or a road racer. It was just like, what do we do now? Yeah. Did you become obsessed with it quite early? Because, you know, you went off and studied to become a mechanic for a while and things like that. Um, but. I gather once you got that that first bike, you even got to ride it to school. I think, didn't you? Yeah, well, I used to ride to school until, until my dad took it off me. <laughs> You'd sneak out a bit too. Is that correct? Yeah, and he caught me doing a wheelie in front of all, the, all my classmates, and 
on his way home for lunch, so the, the bike got taken off him for a while. But um, yeah, but I think it's, I, I was a, um, a fairly good sportsman, mm-hmm. but I was too small for everything. You know, so you you play rugby and and you know I wanted to be the halfback because it was the ideal position. But you were handy on the wing, I'm told. Is that yeah, right? but only because the coach's son played halfback. Okay. You know, so you got put in these positions you didn't want to be, and then then you get a little bit older, and then you're suddenly playing with the younger kids because you're too small for the same age kids. You know, I played basketball, I was a gym, gymnast, and all these sort of things, and they're all um, you know I, I was okay at them, but my size always was a problem. But mm-hmm. you know, when you put your goggles on or you put your visor down. It's all, it's all go, you know, and that was that was where I could, uh, you know, hone my my skills into uh, doing something for myself, and um, you yeah, know, that's that's just captured me from there, yeah. You got your license pretty much as soon as you could, didn't you? You put your put your head down, got got your license, and the local police would get to know you a little bit because they were they were in shock about who this short statured kid wasn't did he really have a license is that right <laughs> exactly yeah, I'd be pulled up and I'd be had my foot on the gutter so I could could, could hold the bike up you know and they were yeah like you're too small to have a license and I can remember going home one night and um yeah dad wasn't home my sister was home so I'd, I'd rushed home pretty quickly and um, I turned at the last intersection and saw the, uh, the blue and red lights. So I rushed into the garage, pulled the roller door down, jumped in bed. And, and then there was a knock on the door. And so I sent my sister up and um, the, the, I went up. And then he said, you've got to come upstairs and see that. And I come up in my pyjamas and, you know, and he's, I've been downstairs. I've lifted the garage door. Your bike's still hot. <laughs> so that was uh, a local cop. I know his name today, Roy Sanson. And um, actually he retired about five years ago and uh, his son got hold of me and said, can you just send us a little snippet of, of Roy's early days? So I sent that story to them to, to read out on his retirement. So Excellent. yeah, no, it was, a, it was a bit of fun. But yeah, you know, it, was, it was so much fun back then. You know, and we were dealing with motorbikes that would wouldn't do 110k so they're not not really that dangerous but yeah, yeah you, you you did get a bit carried away were you good from a a hands-on i mean i sense you were with the the mechanical aspect of it and prepping the bikes and things like that yeah and, and out of necessity because my father didn't know anything about motorbikes um so um the the local uh, shop owner who sponsored me in the end uh, ross gregory uh, he lived over the road and so i had this little gtmx and he says well why don't you clean the thing you know and, and so he taught me how to clean the bike and this is where the air filter is and maybe you should change the gearbox oil and um so that went on and then you know then i started working at the bike shop and um you know that, that was the way of, of working on the bike yourself and um yeah so i did all my own maintenance and um you know, I never actually finished my apprenticeship um, because in New Zealand, the uh, six hour um, and the two hours on a Saturday and the six hours on a Sunday, and that was the weekend every year that the final exam was. So I would choose to go and ride the bike uh, bike race and not do the exam. So, and then I had sort of six months to go, and that's where I started travelling to Australia back and forward. So I never did my time in the end. Wow, yeah, close. But yeah. you've kept all those that mechanical mouse. Yeah. The Gregory family were sort of influential in those that, that early period and, and setting you on the path really to, to the world championship. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I I got to um, do my apprenticeship and I was, I think, about 16 and it was, you know, do I buy another motocross bike or do I buy a car and those things. So I bought a car and the motocross ended and then and Ross said to me, why don't you give road racing a go? Mm-hmm. You know, here's a, here's a bike and you can use this bike for... for and so we... My, but my first ride on the motorbike was um, over to Polytech in Petoni. Yeah. So I ride to Polytech and I come home and have a head-on with a Mori 1100. So... <laughs> 
and not my fault there was a um, uh, an intersection which sort of veers off on a, on a V and guy coming home from the pub this is just down the road from where we're talking in Featherstone really not all that far is yeah it? not yeah. far from home mm. um, he so he veered across the road and hit him square between the headlights and went over the over the uh, roof and uh, fractured some bones in my feet and that was my my first experience of road racing you were, road bikes yeah. you, you were knocked out too is that yeah right? yeah yeah and they put me in the same bloody ambulance as the old fella <laughs> and, and drove me all the way to Marcel. And then um, he was—he was—they um, let him out about three hours later, and I'm sitting there with two broken feet. Sure. Yeah, I, I think the, is the when you came around, there was some discussion about whose fault it was, but I think it was pretty clear it wasn't his. Yeah, yeah, no, actually, yeah, it's a little—I—I I, I woke up and there's this little kid hanging over top of me, and I was laying in the gutter. And I just said to him, "Whose fault was it?" <laughs> <laughs> It was, wasn't my bike, and it was it was now wrecked. Yeah, and yeah, before that, there was a, um, a an, another mechanic at, at started at Gregory's as well, and he was a couple years old older than me, and uh, his name was Peter, and uh, Peter was actually killed in a um, flat tracking um, mm. race, and he started road racing, so we were sort of going down this avenue together, and, and then Peter was killed about eighty months into it. Yeah, how much did that affect you? Um, a little bit because um, the bikes we rode at the flat, flat track were uh, the Gregory Yamaha bikes as well, mm-hmm. and we had this XT550 and a YZ250. So we had a motocross bike and a big trail bike. So we used to swap every weekend. So you know, I'd have the motocross bike because it was faster. He'd have the other bike, and this weekend I had the, the faster bike, so I was out in front, and he was back behind and got cleaned up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so just just an unfortunate accident. Uh, yeah, he fell over a, a, in a corner, and I think someone's come around with a, a foot peg to the back of the head. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The the transition. I wanted to step back a fraction, if I can, because obviously there's there's success on the, the dirt, and you've talked about the you know the peer of you um, wanting to to head down that road racing path. But was it at this point in time just fun, or were you thinking about no, I'm gonna this is me, I'm gonna make a career out of this. No, just fun, just one one week into the next. And, and like I said, I didn't have those heroes, I didn't have those books to read, mm. didn't know there was a world championship, you know, didn't really know it was out there. Yeah. It was just fun every, and, you know, riding motorbikes was, you know, where do you get the fuel to put in it for, yeah. the, for that night? And, yeah. and like, we just didn't, didn't have anything, you know. We didn't, you know, there was, there was no spare fuel can to go and get fuel and stuff. It was just, you know, it was just nothing. There was no spare tyres. No, nothing, you know, and, and it was just about getting your mates around and like, how can we go and get someone's lawnmower f- fuel, and then we can all have a little bit, and we can go and do this, and yeah, yeah. So it was, it was, it was pretty uh, menial to start with, and, and it was just about the fun side of it. Yeah. Often there are great life lessons in all that stuff because not only are you, you know, you've got perhaps the Gregories that have that have helped get you started in that sense, but you, you're learning to find ways, uh, in maybe even a little commercial sense, to keep the thing going yeah and I was just talking about our daughter the other day to, to Megan and you know talking about after school jobs and that's probably one thing that I missed there. I never had any holidays because I was too I was too passionate about working mm-hmm. to earn money so I can go and spend it on motorbikes right. you know so from the age of 13 I was in the bike shop and there was no holidays anymore because you just wanted to earn some cash mm-hmm. um, and it was about you know put, f- fueling up the motorbikes so you can go and ride on the weekend life would you know in a competitive way you you um you learn to get very fit and very focused and things like that in in the latter years of your your career. In this early phase that we're chatting about now, was it about the love and passion of the bike, or was it about the want to win? What was it that, that drove you back then? Um, yeah, I think the the bike was just the avenue to be able to win something. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I loved riding the motorbike, and I could ride around all weekend. But um, the better thing was to go to a, a, an event. 
and to have a result you mm. know you can ride around at the river track all weekend that was great but go somewhere and have a result was awesome mm. and that gives you like you say those life lessons that gives you you know do you go and clean the air cleaner do you you know check the spark plug gap do you make it better and then do you get your, your equipment right and mm. and then next thing you know, you're worrying about all that sort of stuff as well because that's gonna come through in the result mm. um if you don't bother with that you know the result's gonna be poor were there when you started down the road racing path were there Injuries with their crashes, and and what are some of those early memories like? Yeah, well, my first road race, I took my um my YZ125 to Manfield, so it's a motocross bike, put some road tyres on it, which is kind of like a local track in some ways yeah, for you, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it was, and um I went there, crashed at the hip, and lost the front, um put a hole in my knee, um got the bike going, got going again after the, you know after that, and then um uh, seized it down the back straight, so. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't know too much about how fast it was and yeah, what you were supposed to be doing and maybe you should have put a bigger manger in it. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, you were rushing up the inside of people on road bikes and you're on a little 125 and, you know, they're on 650s and things and just think, shit, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and that was the sort of the start of it, really. Um, and, yeah, just how much grip there was and, you know, how much road there was. You could use all of it. And, yeah, um, yeah it wasn't until, you know, a little bit long, a little bit later that you realise there's only actually one line. Yes. <laughs> um, there it just seemed so big and, and, and cool yeah your mates would often come I think to local meets like that and you uh, you know over those years you'd, you'd have quite a bit of fun around it New Zealand's got some terrific tracks uh, in, in an historical sense from from Pukekohe Manfield you mentioned I mean Teratonga was there a favourite for you back then Oh, of course it'd be Manfield. Like it's so close. It's only an hour and twenty minutes away, and uh, I think it's a really good motocrossers track because mm. it's got um, three hard braking areas. Yep. So it's just yeah, you couldn't believe how much grip you had and how much how how um, how soon the road races broke mm. compared to a motocrosser. You'd be like in there and you'd pass everybody under brakes, and that would just hone that skill, I think, and just you know the hard braking thing. So you know, always loved Manfield. And then um, Pukekohe was sort of, for me, it was only sort of once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't a great, wasn't that great for us. And um, But the, the one of the better tracks too was Teratonga, you know, it's but it's, it's so short but so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, always loved Teratonga. Um, and then the other tracks, they were sort of modifying at the time, making them a bit longer and by adding a lot of short stuff. And, and it's probably, yeah, I'd still rate Manfield as one of the better tracks for me. Um, yeah, and then then moving on, mm. you know, to be close to home. Then I think you know Phillip Island's the best track in the world. Yep. So the two tracks are really close. Um, you know, and and Phillip Island doesn't offer uh, great facilities and all that sort of stuff. But there's no better track. You know, it's got just everything. Yeah. We'll get we'll get to the Australian yeah, yeah. the Australian chapter and that that important yeah. uh, step on the way to the to the World Championship. You would get to race and and um, be successful here against the likes of uh, Dr. Roger Freeth and others. I mean, there, there were some terrific Kiwi races during that period, weren't there? Yeah, well, see, my first year I, I rode um, an RZ250, so mm-hmm. New Zealand was all about production ra- racing. So RZ250, you could ride that in the production um, 250 race and you could ride it in the F, um, F3, mm-hmm. I think it was. Um, but the... Halfway through that year, um, Mike Dowson came over and they did the six hour and, yeah. and um, um, Yamaha New Zealand made a special bikes for them and da 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 and we had a, a Ross was a you know a Yamaha fan so he ordered an RZ500 just to have one mm-hmm. um, and they, they took it as a spear bike um, for Manfield for for Mike and uh, Dowson and I'm not sure who you partnered with there actually I can always remember just just Dowson yeah. um, I think Richard Scott was riding the other bike. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, was it Rod Hayes? Uh, Rod Rod Harris, maybe. Could be. Um, they they been with the bike crash, didn't it? Is that right? What happened? Uh, well, yeah, that was the thing. They 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 made the special motorbike, and ours ours had never even been started. So it, when gave ours a run and said, oh, "I'll take this. I'll race for this bike." Production bike, no, nothing, nothing been changed, and then they hot rodded this other thing, and they chose to ride our potty bike. But yeah, that was really, really windy that year, mm-hmm. and half an hour from the end, uh, Dowson crashes our bike, just destroys it. <laughs> um, so Ross says to me, "Well, you might as well have that as well." <laughs> so um, the the bike I had the head on crash was was a three fifty. Yep. So that year I uh, bought a, a brand new two fifty, um, got another um, second hand bike and made a three fifty out of the engine, and then we had the five hundred. So in one day's racing, I could do the uh, two fifty cha- uh, two fifty production championship, the junior production championship on the three fifty, and I could do the senior championship on the five hundred, awesome. and I could do F one on the five hundred, and I could do F two on the three fifty, and I could do F three. So the only race I wasn't doing was the one fives in the sidecar. So I was just riding, you know, three races for each um, championship a day. So I was doing like eighteen races a day. And I love it because we don't have that yeah. now, do we? I mean, yeah. I mean, I'd come in and the other bike, Ross had the other bike started, and I'd swing my leg and jump on it <laughs> like a like a Marquez pit stop, and just go out and do the next race. Yes. And no tyres or anything, not new tyres. You mm. couldn't afford to have new tyres and stuff. It was just just riding. Mm. And yeah, that's where I, I yeah I had ten years experience in about two. Mm. Yeah, no, it was awesome. But among the different classes you just rattled off there, the 250 Proddy thing in particular was um, very important to you in a, in, a, in a title sense. How did the door first open to go to Australia? I mean, obviously, you know, Michael Dowson had been here and Aussies often came across the ditch. Greg Hansford, I think, would come as well, wouldn't he? So yep. w- how did that um, opportunity first come about? Well, we, we did that for a few, uh, probably just two years. Like My career in New Zealand feels really long, but you add it mm. up, it's probably only about four years. Mm. And um, so I think I did two years, I did rode the six hour for two years, and then we got the FZ 750. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I, I can remember I was reading a, 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 a motorcycle news, Aussie motorcycle news and Rob Doran's name was in there he was an up and comer from Adelaide yep. so I just picked the phone up and rang this guy um, he cold was, call yeah <laughs> and he was from um, I knew he, I had to ring uh, Wellbank Yamaha and Sydney and get a number and a number and a number I said do you want to come over and partner me for the, yep. for the six hour and like of course he was a privateer and said yeah I'd love to so he came over we won the six hour he says, why don't you come back to Australia? Um, we've got a flat in Sydney and I'm trying to get into racing. And so I hummed and hard and hummed and hard. And then I, I got a, um, yeah, bought a ticket, sold my, sold my RZ 250 because it was the one I owned. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't own the other bikes and got on a plane and went to Australia. Um, and I arrived with no plan, no nothing. And yeah, my plan was to go and knock on some bike shop doors and hopefully someone would give me something. <laughs> it sort of didn't happen. So um, I went into World Bank Yamaha where, um, and um, I just bought a RZ250 and I, all, the only toolbox I had was what, what it came with. And so got this bike. Um, I can remember I, went, I rode it to Amaru Park one day to watch a session and of course I was on the bones of my ass so I didn't register the motorbike <laughs> so I'd borrowed a number plate off something else <laughs> and on the way home from Amaru Park I'd pass on double yellow lines um, so I got got thrown in jail <laughs> and uh, yeah I had to rig up robbers and said can you come pick me up uh, what, what police station were you in can you remember I don't even know what it was it was out, out that Amaru side yeah, like Castle Hill or something yeah, yeah. 
And so unregistered bike or stolen bike because the bike was off a KR, the plate was off a KR250 or something like that, un, uninsured, da-da-da-da. Mm. So it was only about running in the motorbike at that stage. Um, so that was that started it all. And yeah, I can remember them pulling me up and saying, just put the bike on the side of the road. I said, I'm not leaving the bike on the side of the road. I will get pinched. Yeah. So I managed to talk them into let me leave it in this, up this lady's driveway and come back and get it later. Um, so that was my first uh, ride on this bike. Um, but yeah, we, and I, we were just trying to plan trips and, and I only really ended up doing about four races and I was there for six months and did the typical Kiwi thing, go over there and, and just, um, you know, jobs here and there. And, mm-hmm. and But I was, I didn't want to take a full-time job because I wanted to be a full-time racer. So I thought I need to train, I need to do yeah. all this stuff and actually ended up sitting around a lot. Did you? <laughs> yeah, and mm-hmm. then I started working for the motorbike shop um, where I bought it from and that gave me a little bit of cash but I didn't want to get tied there um, and I was always coming home at the end of the year and, um, but there was time was going on and, and you know, there was not much happening in the winter and um, so I, uh, Rob Doran I don't know why he wasn't racing at Winton so I asked if I could borrow his posty van mm-hmm. so he had one of those transit posty vans with yeah. sliding doors yeah. so I borrowed that off him and another friend was over from New Zealand and he was riding in a Formula 2 on a Rotex 250 so we borrowed the van and went to Winton and that was my first race meeting and, and I, out of about four and I can't remember what what happened at that race but the end of the year uh, we I went with Rob and he took his 750 and went to Surface Paradise and um, I finished second in the races up there in Surface Paradise and to a guy called Mick Doohan and you know I, I was riding my bike on the tyres that it came with and I can like for the second race I bought a new rear tyre um, which was a silver dot Pirelli you know which was the go in those days yeah. and, and from Maddich's bought this tyre and and that was it and um, yeah I finished second to Mick in those races there and, and then that I sold the bike and came home and thought what do I do now mm. um, it was okay but no one helped me or it didn't really work mm. work out um, but the new TZ250 came out so that that was a really cool bike and um, so I got my bike in New Zealand to race in New Zealand and then um, at the end of the season I'd won I think I'd won 20, 20 out of 21 races on it yeah, and um, so then I decided, well, instead of buying a bike, I'll just send this bike to Australia and um, I'll go and do whatever meetings I can. Um, and I had a friend who lived in Albury and he had a trailer and, and an HQ and, and so I'd fly into somewhere and he'd meet me there and, and it started all that. And I only did about two or three races, probably two races, um, and Yamaha came along to me and said, you know you can't go into the, to win the prize for the Yamaha Cup, don't you? Because I was leading the championship. Because you were a Kiwi. It was yeah. designed, that the Yamaha Cup was designed for Aussies. Aussies, I think, wasn't it? yeah. And mm. it says, you know, because you're looking like you could be somewhere near the front of the end because mm. you won, won a trip to Spain. Um, and that was how that sort of started. And then um, Bob Brown um, mm. came over and said, why don't you ride a bigger bike and ride my Ducati? Mm. Yeah, so that's where it all sort of started. And at the same time, Robert Holden was at Action Suzuki, mm-hmm. and he said to me, well, we're going to do the six out together um, in the 750 class. Um, so that was happening, and I was sort of, you know, do I ride for Bob Brown or do I try and go the Action Suzuki way? And, um, you know, Bob wasn't riding on Saturdays at that stage because, mm-hmm. um, you know, because of his religion and, and all those sort of things. And, it, yeah, it was it was good times. I mean, people were offering me things, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um and I did the Swan Series that year and, and did pretty well on the on the Ducati. I should have known then, shouldn't I? <laughs> I was, stay with those f- Ducatis. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> on his little 750 Panda and you know amongst all these other things yeah um, so you know and so Bob's Bob's ride was great for me and, and then I rode with Robert and we won the 750 class and that's where we talked about um, yeah. on the TV, yeah. Just just before we started the podcast, I was reflecting with um, with Aaron. Firstly, come back one step. I mean, Surface Paradise Track now gone, Amaru Park now gone, great old Aussie racetracks, Oran Park's uh, another one, great places for bikes and, and for, for car racing. But they did something quite innovative in the in the uh, Oran Park at the at the six hour, I think, wasn't it? And Will Hagen, who's um, been very good to me over time, great commentator, he was able to cross to you. You were mic'd up while you were riding around in the race for chats. I mean, the, the, Channel 7 at the time were doing some amazing onboard things yeah. in, in, in car racing land, but this was a, another level to do it to a bike racer in competition, mate. What was that like? Yeah, well, like I say, it had never been done before, and, and, and he was sort of put this microphone and put the thing in, and no one was doing any, any volume checks or to see if it just worked. Let's just go to it during the race and like I think I was in my first stint you know Robert had come in and, and going in, in Oran Park over the flip flop thing before you come into the last corner I hear which needs massive concentration because it's all blind and then I hear how's it going and it's like yeah good can you turn it down um, so yeah that was yeah our first I don't think it's been done much before yeah, or, yeah, at, at all sense. yeah, yeah. Um, but no, that was pretty cool and I don't know how Action Suzuki got to put it on our bike or whatever but yeah I can remember you know, even after that you're experimenting with, with cameras on bikes and how big they were and all that sort of stuff and and we sort of used to try and shun it away because it was it was a bit of bit of a headache, and um, but it was really cool to do. And, and I remember that was my first conversation I had with Robert um, with, with Robbie Phyllis. Yeah, was on the on the helmet cam, and um, yeah, we've been great mates ever since. I wanted to bring him up because yeah. he's a great character of uh, motorsport in this part of the world, and someone we want to get on the podcast. Actually, we've tic tacked a little bit over Facebook about the chances of of that happening. The friendship's been a long and enduring one for, for you guys. He's a crazy cat sometimes, isn't he? <laughs> oh, for sure. And early days, it was just so much fun. It was just so much fun. Cause, and then, I, I mean, I got to learn after that that just do everything the opposite that Rob does and you're, and, and you're halfway right yeah. Uh, because, you know, it was, it was really good times. But, the, um, you know, Rob and Carol, they've been, you know, they were great to us in the, you know, over there and, and looking after us. And, yeah. and we, we lived in Albury for a while. And, um, you know, Rob... I could, t- yeah. When we first were teammates, I don't know if we were moving here this far, but when we were first teammates. I could feel there was, you know, a bit of tension that you know is with teammates, but he just couldn't help it. Mm. He couldn't help but be a nice guy, you know. He, he, he you could see that he, he just wanted to, you know, beat you and da da da. But then we were so, so friendly and, and so good together that it was all about a team thing. It was a real team thing, and, and. In those days, it wasn't, didn't seem to be beat your teammate first. It seemed to be a team, you know. And Rob and I got on really well, and we helped each other out, yeah, a lot. Flat track racing, also known as dirt track racing, looks similar to speedway racing, but is quite different. Flat track bikes have rear brakes, which allow for a different cornering technique. But both of them do have one thing in common, though. Getting sideways. Are you starting to make a bit more money at, at this stage? I, I think you bought an old Falcon and you're able to, you know, kind of set yourself up a, a little bit. 
But was it still hard to make ends meet at this stage? Yeah, I was making money from prize money, you know, so so just just prize money was... Race paycheck to race paycheck to some degree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then when I was, uh, you know, that year I I rode in Australia on my 250 and for Bob Brown and for Action Zeke, I was flying home and working. So I was working here, yeah, work for six weeks, fly back... It was, and it was better than spending money and just staying there so I was doing that I probably did six or seven trips that year to Australia and, and the last one stayed there for the whole um, Swan Series mm-hmm. um, which I rode the Bob Brown and, and you know during that time the Swan Series you know McElnay came out and there was YZRs and there was all sorts of mm-hmm. really trick stuff and, and that was you know open your eyes and um, you know um, uh, Michael Dowson was riding a, a trick FZR 750 and then they had the NRs I'm not sure if it was that year they had the NR. I think yeah, it was that year they had the NR, uh, the oval piston Honda that mm-hmm. Mal Campbell rode. You know, when I was on my on the Bob Brown, you know, Panther, and mm-hmm. um, and I was dicing with uh, Anders Anderson on his GSXR. You know, mm-hmm. and so that was still 750. So dicing with those sort of guys, but still sort of in the race. You know, top ten, top eight, mm-hmm. um, and could see the guys just in front pulling away because of machinery mm-hmm. and that's where I sort of thought well you know I could probably do this um, mm-hmm. on a big bike and and some people I don't know why some people are big bike racers and some aren't and I just seemed to be mm-hmm. um, it wasn't because of my stature I just seemed to ride the big bikes well mm-hmm. um, and I could tell, tell that early on um, even though the 250 had been so good to me um, the big bike was just so much better and, and yeah it was, it was working would it be fair to say at this, I mean, the, the um, huge feather in, in your cap to have six-hour success at home here in New Zealand, similarly to do well in the six-hour in, in Australia too, did you enjoy that endurance element? I think I have that um, uh, mechanical sympathy, mm-hmm. you know, being a mechanic. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you don't have to go flat out for a six-hour race. Well, you are. You're going flat out, but you're probably giving a, you know, a couple of tenths back to the bike. Still with an end game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, some people just don't. You know, some people just bang it through the gearbox like they always do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's got to, it's got to last. Um, and maybe that was, that was um, you know, my defining thing and that's why I went on to do the 8 hour so well and, and, and win the 8 hour three times and um, because of all that sort of stuff it wasn't about wringing its neck and, and you know getting every last bit of gas out of it and uh, when it came to the 6 hour or 8 hour race yeah the 8 hour of course we're talking about the famous Suzuka 8 hour in Japan which Aaron holds a very uh, special piece of kind of statistic history to win three in a row is a very very rare feat and you held it on, on your own for quite some um, for quite some time there. I want to just continue, if we can, with, with Australia for a moment. At, at this stage, you're flying backwards and forwards. To give it a bit of context, we're talking sort of late 80s-ish now, aren't we? So are you committed to trying to make it to the World Championship or are you just, you know, you want to try and be that Kiwi that, that wins on Australian soil? What's the motivation? Yeah, still not thinking about World Championship at all, really. Wow. Just just thinking of, of riding a big bike and someone's good big bike I can win races on. Okay. And... Um, and you know Mick's uh, in there a bit you know Mick doing like you know, the year before I raced him at Service Paradise this year he gets a, a ride in Japan mm-hmm. and so he's up in Japan riding um, a factory bike supported by a bike shop mm-hmm. and so I'm there and he's not um, so that's quite good then, and you know because I can see what he's sort of doing up there mm-hmm. um, and so I'm riding and then Mick gets a, a job back in Australia which mm-hmm. is really weird he's got he's made it to Japan so now he rides for Yamaha Australia mm-hmm. um, so I've been riding Yamahas and the 250 thing and um, I get a phone call from Yamaha Australia saying um, 
I'm thinking I've got I've got to ride with the superbike team. They've said, well, no, with you know Mick Dewan and Michael Dowson are riding those bikes, but um, Mick's left a gap in Japan. Do you want to go to Japan? And I go, well, yeah, for sure. So, mm. um, so I the, that was so that was '87. So in '88, I go up to Japan and race for this um, bike shop. Um, and it's a it's a bit of a um, it's bit of it's, it's it looks better than it is mm-hmm. uh, because when when Mick got to ride up here, they were trying to get this big bike shop um, and you know hooked into racing, so they were supplying them factory stuff. Mm-hmm. So now they've done a year, the bike shop was going to do it by themselves. So they went and bought a Bermuda Yamaha, and that, and they really didn't have an idea. Okay. So it was pretty tough um, going up and, and and doing that, and and still still not thinking about world championship, just still thinking you know the best to win the championship I'm in, really. Mm-hmm. And, and the opportunity to go to Japan was, uh, you know, amazing. Uh, it meant I didn't have to buy a bike in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I, that's what 88 was all about. And, and Mick, you know, came back to Australia to do the, to do the um, Yamaha ride in Australia. Mm. The focal point as we progress along here would have been the Australian Superbike Championship, I guess, to... to and probably fair to say that that... Uh, entree to Japan was was the beginning of a bit of a um, kind of love affair with the place. You you really enjoyed your time racing in Japan, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, straight away up there, um, it's very very different. And 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 I actually didn't like it at all that first year in '88. It was really hard um, dealing with the team. Didn't speak English. Mm. A guy that was um, you know he was owned three of the biggest bike shops, and he was sort of you know the big boss and, and not that friendly. Um, so it was pretty hard that first year. And and they were offering me everything, which was great. They I, I rode the my only Grand Prix I rode was a Japanese 250. Grand Prix so I had a TZ to ride in that but you know everything was standard mm. nobody knew what they were doing with the bike um, they wouldn't let me fiddle with it uh, you know and then I had a Bermuda which was a Yamaha engine you know Italian machine mm. where they had it just stuck with the you know the yeah. OW01 would have been a whole lot better um, and that was in fuel injected and then we had tr- you know trouble in the 8 hour because they had a fiberglass tank and you know, I had fiberglass in the fuel and it was just a whole lot of drama and um yeah, so it taught me a whole lot of things, but you know, it, it, it wasn't really giving me the results I wanted. Um, mm. And then finally, at the last round that year, finally the the bike went well at the World Superbike Championship, and um, so that was at Sugo. Mm-hmm. And I think I had a, a sixth and a seventh or something, but I beat Rob Phyllis. Um, so that's where my opportunity opened to go back to Australia to be Rob's teammate, mm-hmm. um, because. Um, yeah, I mean, in Australia, me not being Australian, but racing the Australian Championship was so lucky. Like, mm. they had such good machinery there. You know, they had, they had factory Hondas, they had factory Kawasaki's, they had factory Yamahas. Um, Suzuki was the only bike that wasn't really supported, but they had a big um, influence. Big, big swing at it, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. From, from Action Suzuki. So mm. they had great machinery. Um, and no other country in the world did. You know, mm. maybe America did. Maybe, you know, not even Honda Britain, you know, I wouldn't have said was as good a bike at those stage. So, um, so that's, I, I, I beat Robbie in that race, and that's where the offer came to be Robbie's teammate as they were going to a two bike team because Kawasaki were finally producing a 750. You know, they're getting rid of the GPX. Yep. And they were getting a ZXR, so they were getting out of that, and they wanted to, you know, support that that bike. Um, so that's where that came—the shift back to Australia. Iconic bike, iconic colours, great combo—the pair of you together, and the people behind the scenes. How now is Aaron Slight the racer 
um, from a, a fitness point of view, from a understanding the technical side of racing more. You, you, I mean, clearly throughout this period, you're really starting to apply yourself more to that part of the trade, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, in 89, uh, as that season I ride with Robbie, um, you know, I get a, an offer to ride for Kawasaki Australia and to be the workshop boy. Mm-hmm. And I just went, well, actually, I want to be a professional racer. I'm not going to live in Sydney. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to come in and sweep up. Um, so how did that conversation go? Not very well, <laughs> uh, and it was either it was almost you know you you you're putting it making it too hard for them, and you're not going to have a job. Um, but in the end, that's what it was, and I didn't want to live in Sydney because I didn't want to be on their beck and call. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I lived in Albury with with Robbie, um, and yeah, you know, it wasn't about being around Robbie. It was it was about you know getting away from Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did drive to get to the races. Well, I drove. He slept. Um, and yeah, you know, so we did everything together like that. But it was, I think now I you know, was starting to sort of say, well, this is what I want to do, and yeah. I'm going to do it this way. Um, you know, where I, I probably should have just gone and been the, the lackey and loaded the bikes and all that sort of stuff. But I, I knew it wasn't going to give me the results hanging around the bike shop all day. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what happened in, in that year, and, and you know, with a new bike, um, and you know, my very first sort of. Test. Well, I did the Swan series on on Robbie's GPX. Mm-hmm. So that was introduction. Sorry, you would go back to that. Probably introduction to Kawasaki was riding his GPX while he rode a, an F1 bike at, at the Swan series. And um, you know, I, I can remember. It, um, Your face is lighting up here. What's this bike <laughs> like from a memory point of view? Oh, the, the bike's actually not that great because mm-hmm. it's it's and to look at it, it's, it's not a very sexy bike. And, <laughs> and and yeah, the forks are modified to fit it and try and get the the, the ride height right. And mm. but it still works and it's still quite fast. You know, it's still the best result. You know, thing I've had. Yeah, and reliable. And but Robbie's on an F1 bike, mm. um, but I get to ride the F1 bike a little bit as well. And um, you know, right after that series, we have the new ZXR. And I'm, I'm testing with KHI, Kawasaki Heavy Industries. We're at a factory test at Oran Park, you know, Amazing. with brand new bikes. Um, Surreal. Yeah. But the, going to the sponsor, I remember going, well, shit, what, what leathers am I going to ride? Uh, wear? And I'm still, you know, a privateer. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Robbie says, oh, I've got a spare set of Kushitani's. Um, you can have, have those. And, and Kushitani is my, you know, dream leather suit. Yeah. I just, there's nothing better. And after seeing, you know, Wayne Gardner's uh, ZM, um, yeah, what, uh, Triple M suit yeah. in the old days, you know, Kushitani suits are just the best suit, um, but I'm thinking that yeah he's got six or seven of these pairs and you know and I'm throwing it down the road left right and centre and he's going my suit my suit you're f- my suit <laughs> but I'm just thinking that's just a factory right he's got plenty of them but it wasn't quite that way you know it was still Kawasaki Australia um, yeah. so yeah and I can remember picking Robbie off the um, tyre barrier at turn one at um, uh, at Lakeside. And he, he's gone in there and he's going, oh, my fingers. And he's all oh, oh, broken fingers and he couldn't get this. And he's a he's he's not good with pain. Okay. <laughs> so, and so he's, he's sitting there because I'd, I'd already crashed there and I'm sitting on the, on the um, sitting on the tyre wall, crashed. Then Robbie ends up at my feet and I'm going, oh, God. And and the other thing, I was a dumb prick. You're like, you win six races, you get 50 grand. He's on an F1 bike. He'd already won three races. It was it was a walk in the park. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the 50 grand's gone and, yeah. Um, but that was where I, we first got together was the Swan Series, really, and, and then on to the factory test at Oran Park. And, yeah, and then you were a factory rider, yeah. Awesome. 
just one you've triggered a little thought in my my mind here about just the whole industry that goes on in the in the paddock when you get to kind of world championship level and even at, at, at this level um when you're injured like that some of those guys at kushitani and things that they they do some incredible um fast modification to cope with hand injuries and all sorts they're amazing aren't they yeah but it comes much later these still the early days mm. you st- the rider is still not treated like they're treated today. Okay. You know, uh, yeah, in the nineties, it's 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 not you're not the hero, you're not the superhero. <laughs> Everyone's trying to bring you back down the ground, and, and you know, so you're struggling to find gloves that fit and, and things like that. And, and and Japan is a long way away to get a set of gloves. And yep. and you know, Australia is, is a big market, but it wasn't back then. They weren't selling lots and lots of stuff. They weren't giving away free helmets, and you know, so. But I, I had a, a great association with you know uh, Kushitani and, and Arrow helmets and. And those things were sort of set up through Robbie. You know, Robbie had had these relationships, and and so which was great for me to get on the back of them. And um, otherwise, how you would have been dealing with a local dealer, and um, so I was pretty lucky for that. But yeah, like, like you say, um, the the rider um, the rider thing is, is comes. I think even to the late nineties, where you start looking after a rider. Mm. You know, and I don't know why they didn't realise that you would get more out of a, a rider if you actually looked after them. Everybody. Was trying to keep them in their place and, and not trying to spoil them, so they were big-headed because that's that whole Kiwi and Australian thing, yeah, you know, yeah, keeping grounded. And, keeping yeah. grounded. And, and it wasn't probably till the mid '90s that it started to turn around. Mm. Mm. The boys did like to have some fun after the races, <laughs> and you were a bit of a getaway car driver, weren't you? Well, I, I mean, I've raced cars a lot, yeah. but this is where I learned to drive cars. Yeah. <laughs> Um, render cars were just the best, and um, I, there's just so many, so many different stories about render cars. But the one you're probably referring to is we were in Tasmania actually, and um, and um, one of my mechanics, when he takes his teeth out, you know shit's going to go down. <laughs> so he says, "Hold these and get the car." <laughs> so I'm down the car park, the front doors. And um, these two people come out of the, the front of the casino swinging, and they've got bouncers hanging off them, and and then we're off. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a big night and a bit of a, a, an escape thing. But um, yeah, Robbie and render cars, and 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 yeah, we I can remember going um, over in Perth, Amaru, and we turned up one day and. We are in a, um, I don't know what sort of Falcon model it was, but the... This is the dunes out the back. Yeah. <laughs> so that half the car's missing because all the, all the bumper and stuff's back in the dunes because we'd come in the, the, the sand way, of course, and we were jumping the dunes as we came in and everybody's cracking up and getting there because half the car's missing. Um, but there was, there was lots of stories like that and I can remember Robbie taking a car back and um, same place actually, Western Australia, and gave the keys back and we just got on the flight and then all these photos turned up and it was like, you know, broken axles and gearbox and because and when we turned into the um onto the freeway it would only it would only only had third and reverse, the yeah. automatic gearbox. Oh, and when you did left hand corners the um the axle would slip out of the diff. Oh, so it had no dri- had no drive. <laughs> so um the, the car was pretty sick at hand. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, we really learnt to drive in those things it was it was so much fun and then then the whole insurance thing started to happen and then you got in the blacklist and yeah and then it wasn't so much fun anymore we shouldn't laugh we shouldn't yeah. laugh he got sent a six grand bill for that quite yeah. funny quite funny rob phyllis michael dowson malcolm campbell daryl Beatty. i mean it's uh, peter goddard there's some unbelievable names in this australian championship during this phase isn't there but unbelievable names but 
on really good equipment too. So if you can keep up with these guys, you're going to run at the front of the World Championship. Mm. You know, and then you know, in my first year, you send Robbie and you send Mel Campbell away to the Austrite ring and they get on the podium. Mm. So it gives you some hope. You know, it's, So that's when I'm starting to think about the World Championship is, and these guys can run at the front, so so can I. And you know, on those weekends they're away and you come back and you run with them. I can remember looking at one on YouTube just the other day at one race at Phillip Island and I'm, I run with them for five laps. Mm. Only five laps, but it gives you hope, you know. Um, they start to get away, and they, you know, by the end of the race, they've got five, ten seconds on you, but it gives you hope. Just, um, just through uh, equipment, budget, tyres, etc., etc. Yeah, and just learning, learning the craft, and mm. and it's a bit, you know, everybody can be fast for a lap, but you make it last for fifteen, twenty laps around Phillip Island. It's a different thing. Mm. Um, so you're just using up everything to hang with them, mm. and you last there for five laps, but you're learning all the time. So you've got this this exposure to world championship. You've got this exposure to to Japan. You've got the great grounding of of New Zealand and and Australia and things like that. Did you and and your wife Megan? Did you sit down and go right? We're going to have a proper shot at the world championship here, and and here's a rough ladder of how I think we can do it. What what did you do? No, no, no. Because there is there's only the next race. Mm. There's only that one year contract. What's Peter Doyle going to do next year? Is he going to sign you or is he going to pick someone else? Mm. So it's always about the next race. It's mm. no, there's no plan at all. It's just because this, these are dreams you're still having, mm. um, but there's no two-year, three-year contract that's going to lead you on a path. Mm. And like I say, this, at this stage, still the riders just part of the, you know, the, 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 they're not going to carve out a career for me mm. to get their bike on the on the on you know, on the podium because they can do that with 10 people mm. um, so it's still just about weekend after weekend and getting that contract you, you said to me prior to starting the record of this podcast too, just about the importance of, of team and you know I think that probably still helps you in life now from a, a business point of view but working with a, a group of people yes it looks on television like a solo pursuit but very important the role the people around you play in in helping that success happen yeah for sure and then that probably came later uh, yeah when we got to europe as well as 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 you you have individuals from all parts of the world as as well mm. so you got different cultures and all that sort of stuff and and i use this analogy a lot with with the mitre 10 our, our general manager the over covid i was saying you, know, you can see one part go wrong in our process and it just the whole thing breaks down mm. and i said to him it's just like me when i was racing you know you get a, an engine guy who's probably paid more than the chassis guy mm-hmm. and then you get a guy that that polishes a frame and does the wheels and gets the wheels changed so just you know basically three people if you if you boil it down like that um the guy gets paid all the money if he's got two less horsepower than the other engine he built mm. it's not really going to make much difference in the race mm. the chassis guy yeah he needs to do do his stuff and we and we need it all all good but we've figured out a solution together but if the guy who puts the tire and doesn't balance the wheel right you, know, you get in a race and you're a second lap slower race mm. because the wheel's out of balance. And if you don't give him the time of day, what's going to happen? You know? mm. So it's not always about the, the most, it's not always about the guy giving you the horsepower or the, the guy at the top. The, mm. the guy at the bottom is, is sometimes you know, just as important. Just as important. Mm. And he's probably not getting paid as much as the others. So if you, if you don't include him in the whole thing, you know, the whole thing's going to fall over. Mm. It's a game where injury can happen i'll look at your hands while we're talking here mate and i think about stuff like that yeah tell us i mean firstly you've just raised your right arm there and there's a really decent scar there down tell us about that 
Yeah, so th- this is 1992, uh, sorry, 1990 now. So I've done 89 with the Factory Kawasaki team. And now Robbie's um, gone to the World Championship and doing the Australian Championship. So he's doing double duty. And I'm doing a lot in Japan. So they want me to ride an F3 bike, an F1 bike, a super bike. Awesome. And this is great. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm loving it, lapping it up. Um, um, but I get to Japan and it's um, we're testing for the it's a um, 200k race before the eight hour, so it's a, a like a two hour race, mm-hmm. and it gets you ready for the eight hour. So we're testing this bike and it's um, an F1 bike. It's all going good, and the last it's always the last you know last thing of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they slip a new tire in and go, say go and try this, and it was go and try this, and I don't know if it was an accident or I was supposed to be trying this, but it was a new tire. Mm-hmm. But it worked out in the end that I, I'd used a three and a quarter inch rim instead of a three and a half inch rim. Um, so as I came out, so it might have been something we talked about, you know, trying to make it turn or something, or it might have just a tie. I don't know if it was a mistake, or. But I came out of the last corner and I wheelied the bike. Just to set the scene here, we're Suzuka, is that we're correct? Suzuka, yeah. So you come into the chicane, yep. into the chicane, tyres are all hot by now, and I come out of the, the chicane, I wheelie the bike a little bit as I put the front tyre down, it doesn't give any traction. So, so. So a second year, not too fast, maybe 120k. Mm-hmm. But as it folds, I go under with the bike, and typical motocross style, I try to hang on to it. Mm-hmm. But then I become trapped between the um, the broken handlebar and the chassis, and so the bike slides along on my hand. And then I get up, and you know it, I'm missing the back of my hand, of course. So um, I'm I've I never ever lay down. I ne- I'm never in the back of my ambulance. I always mm-hmm. walk it off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm walking down pit lane, and my mechanics haven't seen me come around. Haven't seen me come around, and I've got a you know, green and white suit, but now it's green and red, and they didn't even notice who I was. I'm coming down with my hand, pull my glove off. Um, yeah, my back of my hand's missing. Um, so. That was the start of it all, but yeah, for me it was oh well, bad hand injury. You know, it'll scab over and I'll get on with it. Um, didn't know that I had all, all my tins are missing in my back of my hand. I would never be able to operate my fingers again. Um, so it was a career-ending, you know, crash. crash. Um, and I went to Japan uh, into a Japanese hospital for three days, and I'm sitting there going, well, what's going on? And the hospitals weren't that great in those days, and um, I didn't actually realise, like I say, that that. Excuse me, the amount of damage. Um, so we were supposed to fly back to Australia. Mm-hmm. So um, my mechanic at the time, Mark Wilfred, got um, Wilfrey got me uh, on the plane because my plane was going to go through to Auckland and I was going to come home here mm-hmm. and, and go and see a doctor. Who that would be, I don't know. Like that's what I say about you know riders now to then. We were still in the in the medical system as a as an individual, not a, a superstar motorcyclist, just okay. go and find a doctor. Who's gonna, how do you find a doctor? Good luck with that. Kind of yeah, thing. yeah. yeah. Okay. So I arrived back here and I was very, very lucky that a, um, a guy that operated was a, a burns and hand specialist and he was into car racing. Um, but at the time I thought, yeah, it was just going to scab over and be good. But I've got three tendons missing. So I can't operate those three fingers and I've got that part of the finger missing. I only got the tip left. So we're talking about your right hand here. You've pointed to your pinky for a start, which is kind of permanently curled almost, isn't it? And then the, the finger directly next to it is almost recessed, mate, or set down, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but this this you know, this is just throttle on your brake. Yeah. You don't use a rear brake on, on a four-stroke, so you don't need your foot, but you need this hand. Yeah. <laughs> this does everything. Um, and this is, yeah, I, I the, why my pinky's like that is because my my operation, my second operation I went on to free up the tendons, I actually took a handlebar in there and said make it fit around that 
<laughs> so they do make it a bit bent so you don't catch it on things, but okay. it does fit around a handlebar really well. Amazing. Yeah, and um, see, so I've got uh, see, there's a tendon here. Yeah. So this tendon, which is that one there, is is split in half and it operates that finger as well. Your so, middle finger. Yeah. So those two fingers go together. They can go down sort of separately because they've got a different tendon underneath, but yes. upwards is the same. And same with those two. Oh man. So. That's and that's yeah. You know, I was a four finger breaker in those days and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. this has just ruined my career, and now I'm going to start try and start riding again after this. Um, but this is probably where I I realised um, I was a I was a fast rider, mm-hmm. but I wasn't that smart. And now I needed to to start saying, well, I'm not going to go and test that shit. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I'm had enough mm-hmm. because I was just a lackey. You know, and I just did everything they wanted me to do, and I was riding one, you know, and this was just the end of the day, shouldn't have happened. Okay. And this was a turning point for me that I thought, well, if I get over this, mm. I need to start calling some shots because it's just, it's just too hard. Mm. Um, so, yeah. so how, how much in the operation to make your hand work in, in a braking sense, in a, in a motorcycle racing sense, was. Um, about this doctor helping and was it was there a bit of groundbreaking stuff in it and then how, how much did you have to adapt as a rider given the, mm. the the hand injury and very very lucky like i say the riders i'm still saying the riders still not treated as a superstar anymore mm. i was so lucky this is the first year i'd sign a two-year contract if i hadn't if it would have been career oh, over mm. so i was coming back whether you like it or not and I was, I was ringing you know Peter in Australia and you know I'm going to be there I'm going to be ready and, and so I went and rode the I think it was the Arai 500 they used to have at Eastern Creek it wasn't mm-hmm. a, a race they used to have at, at Bathurst but now it was Eastern Creek yep. and they had a shootout and a $10,000 shootout if you win three races or something and the, the formula was ideal because it was only about five laps each so my hand at the time um, I well, going back to the, did the, did the operation, and um, I was doing physio four times a week in Wellington. Mm-hmm. So I was driving over the hill and back four times a week, and I was getting nitrous while she was trying to break the scar tissue off those tendons. Because oh. see, see that that there is is a uh, called an ulnar flap. So that's cut off here and slapped on there like a piece of steak. He's just pointed to the underside of his arm slash wrist and then flipped it over to where it was placed. Basically. Yeah, so that's sort of, that there's sort of your finger there. Unbelievable, you and can see the scar still. Put it, so they put it there, yep. but when they put it on there, it just sticks to the tendons. So there's, there's no tendon tunnels, you know, for carpal tunnel, you yes. know, that, that, that injury you talk about, carpal tunnel, no, there is no tunnels. So it's just stuck. So I'm got, I've got a, um, you know, a barbell and she's just doing it with nitrous trying to break the scar tissue. Whoa. Um, and so that went on for three months and I, in the end, talked the doctor into giving me another operation. Mm-hmm. So where he just slithers the top off and um, releases all the scar tissue and when you wake up you just start moving it and you just doesn't matter what the pain is because now the now the tendons are fine mm-hmm. the tendons can't break you just got to make some tunnels okay um, so I had a drip hanging out of here and from when I woke up at the operation he was saying do this so clench, clench, your, clench your fist yeah. the whole time and yeah. before that the operation before that I had these this special little like look like a guitar with these return springs and stuff that was to try and stop the mm. the scar tissue forming mm-hmm. uh, because the um, these tendons are, uh, sort of blanket stitched together so as soon as you move them you break them so this was to stop that but in 
what happens is it just glues up and you can't work it. So I was very, very lucky to get the second operation. But in New Zealand, once again, I was professional racer. It wasn't, you, know, you couldn't just go in and pay for it. You had to do it through the public system. So I waited and, and luckily enough, this guy was in the cars and he knew what was happening with me. So he did the operation on you know, the medical system and, and that's where I came out with. And this hand is really, really strong. Um, from all the physio I did in the end but when I rode at that Arai 500 race I probably only had about that much I couldn't even grab the handlebar I could go from here onto the brake so, so your the description you're giving here is going from open palm to sort of closed fist you may have had what mate 20% movement getting toward that yeah, closed uh, fist and probably if, if the handlebar was three times the size that it normally is would be comfortable to wrap around but I couldn't wrap around a normal size handlebar so I was going from gripping it with my thumb almost the handlebar to getting on the brakes and you know what if the thing got into a tank slipper I was probably history really <laughs> because I couldn't grip it um, and that was the race I did there and I came back from that race and then got the other operation um, but I had an okay you know results after a big comeback with this manky hand yep. that gave me the, the, the next year um, you know so 1991 um, I had the TA contract with and then Kawasaki bring, brought out a new bike again and this bike was ahead of, ahead of the field mm. yeah two questions to finish the injury the, this first injury on if we can a tough bastard was was that what was that pain like and b just the way you um, to, to adapt to it. I mean, you talk, you talk about the hand being quite strong now, but it clearly wasn't to to begin with. Was it just a case of to hell with it, or how did you deal with it? Yeah, and, and like at the same time, I had broken the, um, my shoulder as well, which I didn't actually realise because it was, they were too busy worrying about my my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pain was. I remember when they operated, they used to give me an arm block. Um, and the arm so block. you're awake. You're awake, but you've got an arm block. Oh no, this is afterwards. Oh, for, for the pain is so intense. It's like a yeah. It's like you're operated. They just block the arm, <laughs> and um, the arm block lasts for eight hours. But like everything, it wears off, doesn't mm-hmm. it? So the next time it only lasts for seven hours. Next time it lasts for six hours. But the the nurses in those days were waiting for the eight hours, weren't they? Yeah. And you're in pain for two or three hours. Um, yeah, no, it's immense the pain, and um, you know. That was it's just yeah that was a horrible time, and I and I crashed and when I got put this hand caught underneath the bike, mm-hmm. I'd done that and slapped this hand on the on the road as well. Flipped over. Yeah. So I was you know on the when I was coming back on the plane on on the plane can't use any of my hands. So I can remember in the operation trying to go to the the loo and all that sort of stuff. I got two two hands that are can't like use. like meat cleavers, you know, like just yeah can't use. So it was it was bad for a, you know a couple of weeks and um, then knowing. Not knowing, I'm like, you know, thinking it's just going to scab over and come right. Not knowing that it's actually internal damage, you know. And then you, you suddenly start processing that two weeks later, and are you going to even ride again and all that sort of stuff? And I'm just giving the, the big phone calls. Yeah, it's all good, and I'll be back, but not knowing. Yeah. Motorcycle races are next level when it comes to pain tolerance, aren't they? Most of us would probably just give up. That's the end of part one of my podcast with world superbike hero Aaron Slide. Make sure you dive back into the library and hit the start button on part two. He opens up on loose plans to race with a famous Holden team at Bathurst and the lead-up test that he did for them, plus an intense search for answers after fatigue set in during 1999 at the peak of his powers. 
a search that would uncover something far more serious, and in typical slight fashion, why he refused to let it beat him. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes.